let's go ahead and get started. Again, thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, I am happy to talk uh, uh, about Watchtower and what we hunted for in the previous month here at Sentinel One and uh, some of the biggest threats we saw. I'm also happy to welcome Drea London Petter. She's our Senior Director of uh, Digital Forensics and Instant Response here at Sentinel One within our vigilance organization. And as always, Naran John, uh, one of our lead researchers and one of the lead contributors to our, our monthly reporting and one of our lead threat hunters is, uh, is joining us. Uh, and of course, myself, Brian Hussey, I'm a VP of Threat Response. So with that said, I'll just do a quick rundown. Uh, we kind of had a slide similar to this the last go round, but just as a reminder, what is Watchtower? Uh, Watchtower is a sub-brand uh, that, that encompasses our threat hunting at Sentinel-1. Uh, threat hunting as a service. So there's two different levels. Uh, Watchtower itself is based on all of our telemetry, all of the attacks we see being on tens of millions of endpoints throughout the world, across all geographies, across all, uh, all industries, and the, and the threats we see there in coordination with what we see from open source intelligence, third party intelligence, uh, research in the dark web, et cetera, underground forums. Uh, so that's kind of the intelligence gathering portion. We do a when we have interesting findings, spikes in it, uh, cam new attacks, uh, spikes in certain activity from various threat actors, we zero in, do deeper dive research to create queries. And, and again, uh, I have said this before, but threat hunting based on a hash or an IP or a domain is not really threat hunting, right? That's that's just searching for uh, a set parameter. Well, we lay with it changes all the time. So we really try to do a deeper understanding, a deeper investigation to give us a better understanding of the full kill chain and the behavior of attackers. So we really understand the modus operandi of various campaigns and threat actors so that we can devise queries that last throughout an entirety of a campaign or, or are, are gonna be effective through several iterations of malware families. So it's not something that's gonna change usually. So that's really our focus within Watchtower is creating queries and hunting mechanisms that uh, are going to be useful for long term and not lose value once the uh, once the atomic IOC changes. So with that said, some of the key things, we actually have a lot in July. It was a very, very busy month, as is every month, it seems. Uh, but of course, Kaseya, this was something that, that happened over the 4th of July weekend. And I know we went into a holiday weekend thinking we would actually get a break, but Drea, myself, our entire DFER team uh, was working nonstop on, on what was Kaseya uh, and the, the attack that, that happened uh, uh, based on that from you know, the Revil uh, ransomware attack that was based from there. So we did some deep dive on that. We certainly hunted for that globally. So we'll talk about that for a bit. I think Drea is going to talk about that. Silent Librarian was very interesting. We saw, now this is an APT group that's been around a long time, an Iranian APT group that is focused on targeting universities and the education industry. So uh, Naranjan's gonna talk to us about that one. We saw a major spike. That they've been doing their attacks for since I think 2017-ish, but a major spike in activity targeting global universities in the last, uh, last month to two months. So that was a big focus of hunting for us, especially within our education industry clients. So Naranjan, I'll talk about that. Print Nightmare, another, yet another major vulnerability exploit released uh, targeting Microsoft. They've had, Microsoft's had a rough go for the last uh, few months when you look at the 
hafnium. I hate to call it hafnium, but that's what the industry is calling it, right? Uh, but you know that series of uh, uh, exchange server exploits that that were released and and, and used across the world. We got print uh, the print nightmare. So I mean, there's been a series of major vulnerabilities. So print nightmare was another big one that came out in um, last month and something we focused on. Some, uh, we saw some interesting spikes in Iced ID, uh, Solar Marker, different uh, malware campaigns. We'll talk a bit about that. Some uh, goot loader activity, and we discovered some new families of malware out in the underground forums. So we will talk on all of these. Plus, Iranian uh, APT Muddy Water jumped, uh, jumped up and, and was showing some significant activity along with the continuation we talked about the targeting of Fortinet devices that we spotted, uh, and I think that was in the June, watched our report, and we saw that just continue with some interesting new dynamics. So we have an update and we continue to hunt on, uh, on that. So again, busy month. Uh, we are now in, the, in kind of the reporting phase. We've released our report. We released two versions of the report, TLP Amber with a lot of sensitive intel and hunting techniques and, and forensic investigation findings that are part of our AMBER report uh, that go to our customers. But we also provide a TLP white report that goes out to everybody. Uh, and it's got a lot of the same good stories and information, just not quite all the same sense of intelligence. So we do like to educate globally as much as we can. Uh, for our, some customers, you know, if there is a finding, they hear from us and we launch into investigations right away. So uh, again, that's what we talked about. Uh, this is what the report looks like. Please go out, uh, download the TLP white version and enjoy, enjoy the stories. A lot of effort, a lot of time goes into giving the backstory of these attacks, right? How did they happen? If we know who's behind them, what do we know about them? And, and uh, uh, you know, the story and, and what are they talking about in the underground forums and the dark web? We try to give that full story uh, to really educate and really it's interesting. Sometimes it's like reading a spy novel. So um, please do enjoy. So what I wanted to talk a bit uh, about, and what I did talk in, in some depth, uh, I, I'm usually responsible for writing the reflections section, which is just some, some thoughts, uh, editorial kind of, uh, that kicks off our, our research, and uh, supply chain attacks. I mean, it's, it's not a new thing. In 2007, 2007 the, a, a big thing with Seagate hard drives, manufactured in China, delivered with malware embedded in them. So a major supply chain back attack back in this is 13, 14 years ago. I don't, I doubt that's the first one, but that's one of the big ones that at least in my memory pops up. 2019, here we are 12 years later, um, motherboards, uh, super micro motherboards delivered with, a, again, developed in China, created in China, uh, but delivered with a hidden back door. So, I mean, that's a one element of supply chain, right? When we are creating like Apple devices and, um, uh, our computers, our motherboards, our, all of this, when they're being created in China, there's obviously a, a potential threat vector there, right? Um, now, just fast forward up to uh, solar winds. This was huge, right? This was, we, we were all about this back in January, February, December timeframe. And this, right, the solar winds update, and this is a little bit different from the physical supply chain that we were just talking about with the first two examples. Solar winds was, uh, hidden Russian malware in a solar winds update, right? It comes in, it's seemingly legitimate, but it's uh, uh, but but again, it, it's it comes in and, and that having it, that air of legitimacy as a, as an update enables 
it to be very effective in uh, in attacking and and gaining leverage into a, a victim environment. And in Solar Winds, I mean that was that was massive, right? That was a uh, hit government organizations very very sensitive and, and and you know organizations from the U.S. from other countries uh, and government, nuclear research, uh, all all other types of organizations. So Solar Winds was massive. So jump up to 2021, um, very shortly later, right? We're just a quarter or two from solar winds and all that that was. And here's yet another example with the Kaseya update. And this time it was a cyber criminal threat actor. I think there are arguments to be made whether um, some of the Russia-based, Eastern European-based cyber criminal actors are part-time government actors. Hard to say. That's a conversation for another day, probably. But um, either way, containing Revol. Uh, Revo ransomware. So, uh, and, and there is a debate uh, on whether this was truly a supply chain attack or not. Eh, we'll talk about that later. It does fit the model of a supply chain, right? It fits the model of uh, a supply chain attack where that trusted environment, uh, trusted vendor is, is infected. Uh, so, and just want some things, you know, why is the supply chain attack so effective? Well, number one, scale. Right, you hit solar wind, you hit Kaseya, you've got access to thousands and thousands of customers by infecting or weaponizing the, just this one one update file. So yeah, massive scale, very quick. Trust, we, we, there are known vendors, we trust them, right? And, and oftentimes we have exclusions or whitelists enabled for these clients, for, for, uh, for these environments, or the, for, excuse me, for these vendors. So just a good general thought, always go with that least trust, you know, that model of minimal trust possible. So if you are adding an exclusion or some kind of to your security software to say, okay, trust this, whitelist this, give it the minimal possible to still allow it to operate because you still, you know, as minimal trust as possible. Uh, and then surprise, right? Even though we see these things time and time again, it's, we're still surprised. We expect when we buy something, we expect it to be clean. So again, I mean, this is, um, these are just a, a repeating series that we see again and again of uh, these supply chain attacks being incredibly effective. But, um, uh, and, and again, it, the psychology, the human psychology and of seeing, hey, even when I see an alert pop up for a trusted device or a trusted software, I'm more likely to click ignore or it's okay. It's like, oh, it's just our, our, our trusted software. So I guess remain vigilant, always be looking, even when it's trusted software, Exclusions or whitelists you add, minimal possible is my best advice. And again, keep always keep uh, observant. So that's just some thoughts, again, some reflections on the supply chain. With that said, um, let's dive deep into Kaseya and the Revil attack with Drea. Thanks, Brian. Uh, nice to meet everybody. This is my first webinar that I get to do as a Sentinel. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys today. Um, so as as Brian mentioned, it's pretty difficult to talk about the month of July without mentioning or discussing the, the Kaseya VSA incident that happened on July 2nd. Uh, due to kind of like the downstream nature of that attack, um, it wound up impacting what most people believe to be over a million endpoints um, uh, during the first few days of, of it being in place. Um, and if that proves true, that would make it the largest ransom event um, in world history. So 
was certainly impactful um, and worth discussing. Uh, so just a little bit of background. I know that, that, that this has been discussed in the industry quite a bit, but for those of you that may not have delved into it, um, around noon Eastern on July 2nd, uh, customers of the Kaseya VSA product began to raise alarms that their uh, networks and endpoints were encrypted with ransomware. Um, it took very little time for security analysts all over the world to start investigating and, and they were immediately able to determine at that point um, that the Kaseya VSA process was being used to push um, the malicious payload from those on-prem servers downstream to the endpoints. I don't think anybody knew at that point quite yet what the initial attack vector was, but there was definitely evidence to suggest that that legitimate process was being used. Um, so, you know, due to many built-in exclusions and trusted relationships, kind of like Brian was mentioning in a moment ago, um, that made this attack very successful and very difficult to detect. Um, and so, again, like was just mentioned, managing those trusted relationships is always a good security hygiene um, kind of audit to do regularly. Also interesting to note, um, this year, <laughs> Kaseya CEO was making public statements about a public offering. Um, they, you know, they, they wanted to go into the stock exchange. And I think a lot of people believe that probably made them vulnerable to extortion and could suggest maybe why they were a target uh, for this attack. Um, definitely fits in with the, um, the Revil kind of MO, ransomware as a service MO, so um, that makes quite a bit of sense. Um, but just a little bit of background on the timeline. Um, a couple of days later on the 4th of July, the White House um, confirmed that they were working with the FBI and CISA and Kaseya to investigate the incident. Um, also at that point, Kaseya had, had um, uh, built a, a, a detection tool that they made public. Um, and CISA had basically said, hey, you know, if you're using the product, use this detection tool. It's going to be great for containment and remediation. Um, but otherwise, at that point, we didn't know a whole lot. We knew um, the attack spanned about 17 countries, including the UK, South Africa, Canada, Argentina, Mexico, Indonesia, New Zealand, Kenya. It was widespread. Um, we knew that it hit about 50 MSPs, um, and that number has fluctuated back and forth, but I think that's what folks are kind of uh, coming to agree upon now. Um, but the downstream impact that those MSPs had is what's really made this so um, colossal in nature, and that's uh, over, you know, somewhere between 800 and 1500 businesses wound up being impacted through those MSPs. Um, so on July 5th, um, the Revol ransomware gang um, posted a demand for $70 million uh, in Bitcoin for a global tool to decrypt all the uh, impacted systems. This is kind of interesting. I don't know if they were trying to crowdsource or they were looking for some sort of angel investor. I know that we were joking around a bit about um, a GoFundMe page, um, but it definitely was an astronomical amount of money at that point and kind of quickly started having conversations about negotiating um, that cost. Um, then on the 7th of July is when the press sort of starts making its way into things. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that Kaseya had been warned in April about a vulnerability um, that wound up being kind of the initial attack vector of the attack. They were um, actively trying to patch that vulnerability. I think they were taking it quite seriously. Um, however, they had not deployed the patch yet. And this is where we start to get into that conversation of, was this a supply chain attack or an exploitation of a zero day vulnerability? Um, but it did, it did kind of come to be that 
exploitation of a zero day vulnerability within the Kaseya application itself was the initial attack vector, rather than there being any compromise of the integrity of the Kaseya product or their development backend, it was actually an exploitation of a zero day uh, vulnerability. So kind of going down the line the last couple of weeks now, on July 10th, um, you kind of see other secondary attacks popping up. Um, smaller groups are starting to leverage um, phishing campaigns saying that they're Kaseya updates, they're targeting IT management software companies. It was bad enough that Kaseya actually made a public statement warning recipients and, and, and users of their product to not click on these attachments. Um, on July 7th, um, Kaseya finally restored their SaaS uh, remark management service for the MSPs. So they were down for, what was that, like nine days? Um, and then strangely on July 13th, Revil disappears. Um, we don't really know why. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but um, all remnants of them online have have gone gone down and remain down uh, today. Um, and then on the 22nd, Kaseya obtained a universal decryption key. They say they're willing to share. However, um, a pretty tightly worded NDA was required for any customer that wanted to use that key. At that point, it had been a while. I think a lot of people were already well on their way to recovery. Um, but certainly I'm sure that, that some people may have leveraged that key. Um, and then on the 26th, I'm sure due to some pressure, because they did confirm that they did not pay the ransom. Um, we don't know how they obtained the key, um, but they did not do it by, by paying the, the ransomware gang. Uh, so to kind of get into the details of the attack, um, the initial attack vector actually leveraged an authentication bypass that was in the web interface of the Kaseya VSA servers. Um, so uh, the attackers exploited that vulnerability. Um, they uploaded their payload and ex executed a command uh, via SQL injection um, that deployed the malicious updates that were then pushed downstream. A little bit of detail on the process execution. You can see an image here in the screen of, of the Sentinel-1 uh, platform and kind of what that process execution looks like um, visually. Sorry, I didn't tell you guys to go to the next screen. Um, but so the attack originates with agentmon.exe, which is the legitimate process uh, for the Kaseya virtual server administrator. Um, that process uses the command prompt then to execute PowerShell commands to evade detection. Um, and then it also actually executes the Revil dropper, which is agent.exe. You can see that kind of that chain there. Uh, so agent.exe, the dropper, it uh, executes uh, legitimate signed Windows Defender process uh, and the Revil payload and psvc.dll. And then it later sideloads that into the legitimate process, which is what makes it so, so difficult to detect. Uh, a few things that we identified in testing that might be useful for hunting purposes or intelligence gathering. Um, agent.exe contained two files in its resource section. Um, they're, they're both listed there, msmd.eng.dll and mpsvsc.dll. Um, those files were both written to the Windows directory um, when agent.exe was ran. Um, agent.exe was initially dropped as a base64 encoded file that was agent.cert, and it was in a folder called K, uh, C, or local disk, colon working, uh, K working. Um, and you've probably seen, if you've been reading up on the attack, uh, a few other things happen in that working directory, but that cert file is, is of the most importance. Um, PowerShell commands are ran to disable monitoring and protection. You see that in a little gray box there in the image. Um, and then uh, the encrypted files 
wind up containing an extension of about seven to 10 characters in length. Um, when we performed the, 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 the testing, uh, the ransomware demand that we that was returned to us was about 45 US dollars. Um, however, other researchers and, and companies have reported seeing ransoms between 5 million, 500,000, or on bigger targets. Um, and then obviously, as mentioned a moment ago, the $70 million global key. Uh, and of course, it'd be important to note, uh, Sentinel agent did proactively detect the DLL payload and detect the take policies. You can see that a picture of that there. Um, and it actually provides the customers with the MITRE attack IDs associated to the attack. So um, allows for some you know, future table topping, purple teaming planning and things like that down the road. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of the scope of the attack. That's, that's how it went cradle to grave um, and some background and history on kind of the interesting business aspects of what went down. I love seeing the detections, uh, but again, like, like I always say, Sentinel-1 is it's very, very good at finding these attacks, but boy, it's, could say that this is a dangerous, if there's um, inadvisable exclusions, there could still be a threat. That's why we are always hunting, right? When, uh, when a uh, potential customer or somebody may put uh, the exclusions or, or safeties or whatever you call it, whitelist that um, they may be beyond what should be put in there, or maybe they have policies. I think in this screenshot, we show them and protect, like we're gonna, so yeah, if you've got these policies and you don't have inadvisable exclusions, we've got it immediately. So, but yeah, always be careful with the, the policies and, and how you do that. So um, with that said, we're gonna move on to Science Librarian, but I had a couple of questions. Uh, again, I think it was, so you said on July 13th, uh, so about 11 days from like a Kaseya attack, Revol just kind of disappeared. And, and I mean, to me, this is reminiscent of Colonial Pipeline, right? The Colonial Pipeline attack hit and we saw uh, Darkseid, they were, and, and with Darkseid, we know who, was, who did it, right? I mean, they, uh, at least we, I think we know, at least, I don't know if it was publicly out, but everybody pretty much believes the FBI was responsible for taking down Darkseid's network infrastructure, the access to their funds. And, and basically, as we talked about last month, Darkseid just went away. Uh, they were even, they didn't pay their affiliates, so they, because they couldn't, because they lost all access to their funds. So they were even banned from the underground marketplaces and all that. Do we know, and now we see Revolt similarly just disappear, but we don't seem to know who's behind it this time. Do, do we have an idea? Do, do we know who might, be, who might be behind it? And what does this say about either say the US or even who knows, maybe another government's ability to strike back against these actors? Yeah, so it's a controversial topic. There's a lot of opinions out there on this right now. And I think all of them have legitimacy in their argument. Um, certainly, you know, the quick the quick takedown take could be um, suggestive of law enforcement and intervention, whether that's, you know, whose law enforcement is unclear, but obviously, you know, between the G7 summit and um, documented calls between, um, you know, President Biden and, and Putin, um, you know, there are some people that, that believe maybe the, the Russian government has forced to take down on their own in an effort to um, actually respond to those demands. Uh, there's other folks that think that the quick takedown is more suggestive of Revol removing themselves. You know, taking down everything at one time would be difficult for somebody that didn't necessarily know where everything was at one time. I think it can be argued that the Russian government probably knows where everything is at one time, but, but 
regardless, this is some of the arguments that are being made. So, um, you know, I think it, 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 if they took their stuff down on their own, that wouldn't be the first time we've seen, you know, a, a ransomware group um, go underground and rebrand, rename, rebuild uh, to come out with a different presence, especially after how impactful and kind of sideways the Kaseya event wound up going. Um, but there's definitely, you know, some political atmosphere right now that could suggest that uh, there was government inter intervention as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and to think the government or the, the Russians may have actually taken action. Um, maybe. I mean, it, I mean, there, there's kind of this um, unwritten set of rules with with Russian government. It's uh, if as long as you don't attack Russia, uh, then sure, go go get. Uh, you know, go get the money and bring it into our economy, right? I mean, they, they, they don't get attention, uh, which is why the majority, not all, but the majority of these ransomware or any of the other, other families of malware uh, don't even operate if you have a Russian keyboard, a Cyrillic keyboard installed within your system, which ironically, to our listeners, um, one, of the, one of the easiest ways to, to, and pretty effective ways to, to add an extra layer of security it's just add Russian keyboards to your to your endpoints, and uh, you're suddenly going to make a lot of the malware out there inoperative. So just an idea, just an idea. Um, but yeah, and it does seem to be a shift. I mean, you, you, like you said, that the G7 summit where where uh, Biden confronted Putin uh, pretty directly, and then there's that executive order as well uh, that. We've seen, uh, it seems like, so this executive order advising endpoint security, like Sentinel-1 across all U.S. organizations and government agencies, uh, along with a host of other uh, advisories, basically, for to enhance cybersecurity within U.S. infrastructure. It's, um, it, it just seems to be, we are suddenly, whether it's us or, or whether it's pressure on other uh, governments, I don't know, but it seems like we just have a much stricter response uh, it, that we saw during the G7 summit, like concurrent to those discussions between Biden and Putin, Klopp ransomware group was taken down as well, right? And then uh, now we've seen Revil, a big one, uh, seemingly taken down, or at least who knows? I mean, they're, they've disappeared. Uh, and then uh, at least temporarily, we don't know the, the circumstances completely, Darkseid taken down pretty clearly. Now, are they going to come back? Possibly. I mean, really, with Klopp, those were actual arrests. Right. And, and they're harder to come back. But these cyber criminal groups are known for, <laughs> it's like like the Hydra, right? You slice off one head and it, another one grows in its place. They just, all they need is a new bulletproof holster, a new network infrastructure, and they're back to their old business. Our arrests are the most effective way to take them down, I think, actually putting them in jail. Um, but with that said, it seems there's a different stance these days. Uh, new sheriff, I, I don't know. We seem to be more active in 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 striking back in recent months. I don't know, what's your take on that? No, I agree. There's, there's certainly a different um, approach. Where that's coming from, I'm not sure, but something's definitely more effective. Uh, we've seen, we've seen more impact in the last few months than I think we've seen in a long time. And um, and whatever is, you know, we can attribute that to, that's, that's great. I hope that we, we keep going, but I do suspect, um, to your point that we will see these guys come, come back to ground, um, and, and hopefully we'll be able to identify them rather quickly. Um, but there, there's a never ending, um, economy for this stuff, right? So 
uh, we'll, we'll see them again. Yeah, I, uh, for me personally, I'm a proponent of taking this aggressive action. Now, mm -hmm. I will say, and I spent a lot of time in the FBI uh, intel gathering, and there is a counter argument to say, well, right now we know where they are. We're observing them. They know their network IOCs. We know their, their, where their money is going. We're watching them. Uh, once we take them down, they're going to move, and we have to find all that information all over again, and then we may have blind spots for a while or maybe a long while. So there is a counter argument to taking action. Uh, I'll just put that counter argument out there. Personally, me, I'm still a proponent of, we got to take action. We can't let these guys keep beating us up. But, um, but I understand why we may want to observe and gather intel as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, and to your point, when you talk about following the money, you know, and, and, and how digital currency plays into that in those difficulties and, and, and knowing that at least some of the funds for, from Colonial Pipeline were recovered and, what does that mean for our ability to recover um, that type of currency and, and what impact and change can that have in our ability to respond? Because I think if there's more comfort there than, than taking that more aggressive approach, it has less risk um, and, and you're, you're less likely to, uh, to, to miss something um, when, you, when you're a little bit more proactive. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanna, I want to move on to Slant Librarian. This is such an interesting topic, though. One question I did want to throw at you. There seems to be this open debate in the security community. You addressed it a little bit. Um, is this a supply chain attack? It certainly looks like one. And everybody called it a supply chain attack from the beginning. But then uh, a lot of security practitioners said, wait, no, it's not. Because mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's, it's a more traditional. Could you just explain that debate quickly before we move on to the next topic? Yeah, I think the debate is essentially, you know, since the Kaseya software was exploited outside of that development lifecycle, sort of on its own independently um, because of a vulnerability, rather than having the integrity of that code compromised, that's really the root of um, the argument. And and I'm sure other people have multiple opinions on this topic. So so, but. I think that's really the core. And in my opinion, you know, when I think of supply chain, I think of it more, you know, brick and mortar even, right? Like everything has a life cycle. And, and so when you have a downstream impact from an event, I think that my, me personally, I can I still consider that something that can be defined as, as supply chain. But I definitely do see the differentiation between, you know, having somebody essentially in the development life cycle of code creating a vulnerability that they intend to use and pushing that downstream versus identifying a vulnerability externally that's already in existence and exploiting that outside of essentially their, their development life cycle. So I think that's a big differentiation there. I personally still use the term uh, supply chain because it's easy and, and makes sense to me, but you know, to each their own. That's, uh, thanks. That actually makes it, <laughs> helps it make a lot more sense to me um, just as that debate goes. All right, um, Naranjan, so we're gonna talk a bit about Silent Librarian. I'll pass the, uh, pass the baton to you. Oh, I think you're on mute, Naranjan. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, we'll talk about Silent Librarian, a pretty group believed to be of Iranian origin. Uh, the group is also, quite popularly known as Cobalt Dickens or Magna Institute Hackers. Um, when it comes to what we know about this group uh, so far in the last couple of years is that 
the group has targeted more than 100,000 university professors worldwide and reports state that they have almost 8,000 accounts compromised. They have hit more than 44 in universities in U United States alone and 176 universities in 21 other foreign countries. Uh, the volume of stolen data ranges somewhere around 31 TB in size and more than 750 phishing attacks has been reported so far because we saw some attacks or probably some infrastructures active or first seen somewhere in June, July. So we predict that uh, the numbers would be higher. So uh, in this slide, you would see the generic infections uh, kill chain structure. So what generally happens is like an email, a phishing email with university theme, very well crafted, will get sent or is being sent by the attacker to selected targets in an institute or a university. And the email body contains link to spooked login pages with themes to impersonate targeted universities. And once the victim enters the credentials, the web browsers are redirected to PHP pages. And there's a three letter or three character text file into which the credentials are stored and later, the once the credentials are stored in that text file, the user is redirected to the legitimate web pages of the university or um, library uh, host page. So that that pattern has been followed by the Iranian group Silent Librarian for a very long time. We haven't seen them shifting uh, their TTPs, and the group has been active at least uh, for about six or seven years at least. And the U.S. government has charged nine Iranian individuals for committing. Uh, computer intrusion, stealing research, academic data, proprietary data, and intellectual properties. Um, what is even more interesting is that these guys use interesting top-level domains like .tk, .cf, .me, and so on. So uh, we used passive DNS records, and we were primarily hunting through infrastructure side of, uh, you know, Intel gathering. Uh, we also leveraged our internal telemetry data. We used virus total and many other tools uh, to identify some leads on the recent activities. And uh, I think in July, we were able to identify the entire kill chain hitting a Scottish university, which is quite famous for their research work over the last couple of years. And that details are very well captured in our TLP Amber uh, Watchtower report. The TLP white version captures all this generic stats and details about the group and what we know about this group over the last couple of years. Um, so we also share the heat map um, showing the geolocations of the various universities hit by this particular group over the last couple of years. And you can see like they have conducted a massive campaign over the last few years, uh, just focusing on industry sector of education related institutes. Uh, next slide, please, Brian. Yeah, um, so that's that's interesting. I mean, uh, so we've got this nation state Iranian threat actor since 2017 targeting universities. I guess the, the question that, that, that comes to my mind is why? Um, it, it's we, we've seen a it's since 2017 universities have been specifically targeted. And then just in the last couple months, we've seen a spike in this activity targeting both US and international universities. Um, throughout Asia, throughout uh, throughout the world, w what is it about a university that would? Uh, I mean, I get it, right? Cyber criminals are targeting money, 
nation state threat actors are usually targeting intelligence. Why university? I think the, the value that they could get out of all this intellectual property is directly proportional to money or financial gains for sure, which they could use for their, you know, projects in their country, or probably they can spy and sell it to some other countries uh, for exchange of money and so forth. So uh, intellectual gathering, intellectual property or data gathering has been of high interest, not just to certain Iranian groups, but also for some other uh, nation state groups as well. We know that we have seen that for quite some time. Um, it could be either for military uh, intelligence, it could be on other research, medical side of uh, research works carried by various uh, intellectuals around the globe that these guys are really interested on spying on. And we've also seen certain Iranian or Farsi forums where all this, uh, not all, certain uh, stolen information has been posted in the last couple of years as well. So the group has been quite active. There might be some affiliates doing something more once they get access to these stolen credentials. Yeah, so, so that's really interesting. So I guess what you're saying, I mean, we know, for example, uh, during COVID and the vaccine research and all of that, pharmaceutical companies were, were heavily, heavily targeted so that uh, by, by Russian, by Chinese, by all kinds of threat actors with the goal, with, we assume with the goal of beating to market, right? Being the first to market with a vaccine, the first company to market with a vaccine is going to make billions of dollars. So uh, re it's not just governments doing advanced research. Universities are doing advanced research, companies, right? Uh, universities are doing advanced research into nuclear science, into medical research. They're doing all kinds of advanced research. So I guess what you're saying is that uh, if, a, if a nation state can steal intellectual property from these universities and these researchers, there's a potential to be first to market on whatever it is they're researching and, and actually enable their economy and their internal organizations to, to be first to market. Is that, is that a motivation? Yeah, uh, like they could do trading, under, underground trading, or they could boost their economic growth as well, going forward using all these uh, tricks, for sure. Interesting. Um, Okay, uh, and not to mention, right, professors, one of the things I should say threat actors do, I know, is to track the movements and communications of high value targets. Uh, so if we assume that some of these professors with advanced knowledge in, uh, in, in these topics are, are going to be deemed a high value target, then they probably want to know who are they talking to. And for example, like with Iran, Iran uh, they're always interested in their own organ, their own country, like who within their own country are, is talking to researchers in other countries and, you know, just to observe their own internal population. So are advanced nuclear scientists talking to our advanced nuclear scientists and what does a communication ring look like? Uh, all of this can be, can be valuable from an intelligence perspective. Very true. Yep. Uh, really interesting. So for anybody in our listening uh, group that, that may be uh, working with or for a university, uh, if you would like to know more information on this, please do read our report uh, or certainly reach out to us. We'll get you more detailed information as well. Uh, moving on, ICE ID. So uh, we definitely saw a spike in this as well in July. Dre is going to speak to us a bit about that. 
Yes. So Ice ID is back. Um, Ice ID is, is a financially motivated threat organization. They've been around since at least um, 2018. They're really predominantly known to be used for banking trojans. Um, that's been their traditional MO. Um, lately, though, we've sort of seen them evolve into not really discriminating and, and, and really building up almost like an enterprise version of a malware as a service model where they provide their, uh, their, their code to, to whoever wants to buy it. Um, but as far as what we've been seeing, S1 threat researchers uh, have seen an uptick in telemetry really since uh, May of this year. We've seen over 900 malicious word documents associated with this campaign. And that's really part of their MO, right? They build um, robust toolkits that can be essentially you know, functional in any environment, right? They're, they're, building, they're, they're building for everybody and then clearly selling to anybody. Um, so the word cloud up here in the corner, it, it shows some of the uh, file names that we see associated with these campaigns. They're uh, then usually followed by like a, a date, date, month, month, year, year, year pattern. Um, uh, so, you know, definitely hunting capabilities there. Uh, the sequence of the kill chain is pretty basic. Uh, MS Word macro document is sent via email. Uh, that Word macro dumps a DLL and it actually has a JPEG or a PNG extension into it's dropped into C users public. I think there's a, an image of that uh, above. Um, and then it writes an HTA file. Uh, and that HTA file uses run DLL to execute really with a, you know, a legitimate process. Um, so if you look at the image above, it shows the, the Microsoft scripting host, um, MSHTA, launching uh, run DLL32, which is then used to run the ISD malware. If you're unfamiliar with the Microsoft scripting host, it's actually the utility that Microsoft uses um, to execute HTML applications. Um, but as we see, it can also be used in, in other ways. So adversaries tend to abuse the scripting host um, in an effort to kind of proxy the execution of malicious HTA files, JavaScript, VB script, um, and they all do that then through a trusted Windows utility. Uh, in this case, and, and as you can see in the image above, it's using run DLL32 uh, as that utility. Um, so if we look at one of the Word documents, uh, we actually see, and I think there's an image there, we actually see that it had four macros and two interesting pieces of metadata. Um, there's actually an HTA file itself in the metadata title tag. Um, it's spawned by that scripting host process that's seen above. Uh, the HTA file has a base 64 section that is later decoded to form a command control communication. You can see that decoding in the bottom right corner. Um, and it also it contains the folder path um, of the drop DLL uh, that was masquerading as that JPEG file. Um, so just one thing to note, um, you know, the HTA dropper does run uh, JavaScript code in memory. Uh, so it's important to have kind of an AI-driven XDR solution to make sure that you can detect um, this sort of attack. You can go to the next slide for me. Thank you. Um, so in the past, and I kind of suggested this a moment ago, IC has been um, seen deployed by several ransomware variants, um, and they're, they're really starting to move more towards that malware as a service model to distribute their malware. Um, we've had some investigations um, on my team recently, um, and, and what we've seen in those investigations, and, and the, the above diagram kind of displays some of, of this for you, 
um, several different tools and techniques are being used by the threat actors that are using ICD malware. Um, and, and that the various parts of the kill chain and the tools that we've seen um, regularly are, are there for you to, to review. Uh, recently, we did see one example actually of an ICD intrusion um, that was used for ransomware delivery um, and that they actually were able to work directly with human ICD operators and complete their entire deployment um, in less than five hours. So this, even with a human interaction, um, it is very much an enterprise-driven type model with, you know, support staff and delivery, and they are they are quick on the draw. They get they get this stuff done just like um, just like an enterprise service. Um, typically, the in, uh, initial attack vector does remain the same. We're looking at like phishing and some VPN intrusions. Um, the first few steps include persistence um, via scheduled tasks um, and, and discovery commands. In that discovery stage, the attackers um, really rely heavily on WMI, net commands, ADFind, LDAP, and Bloodhound. We see that stuff over and over and over again. Um, and, and we see them doing things like testing connections between domain controllers and other domain joint systems for those discovery purposes. Um, and then they're also heavily using Cobalt Strike. So we see Cobalt Strike beacons downloaded for com from com uh, remote command and control ser uh, servers, and then um, the executables are transferred via SMB, executed via remote service, and the, they're also used for um, access to credentials. They're dumping LSS processes um, and, and capturing credentials in those, uh, in those ways. So it's really used in a robust, robust fashion. Um, we see exfiltration via our clone. It's always masquerading by a different file name. Um, after the data is successfully exfiltrated, um, we see the ransomware then staged, usually out of domain controller and pushed uh, down to endpoints via PowerShell. So it's just interesting to kind of see how they're building out this, this business model, right? They're, they're building out a, a toolkit that will run on uh, multiple operating systems and mo multiple environments for multiple purposes. Um, and there's definitely a, a serious uptick in their activity in the last couple months. I, I think it's super interesting to see. I mean, this is a great example of what we do in Watchtower, uh, right? And how the Watchtower hunting team, it's absolutely essential for them to be completely integrated and in communicating with your digital forensics incident response team and our MDR team, which is doing analysis on millions of millions of endpoints, right? Um, because for hunting to be truly effective, we need to understand this full kill chain. As like I said, right? I mean, being able to see, uh, chain together a series of events to identify an attack, I mean, behavioral or, or, or however we, we do it, um, it's just so much more effective than, again, searching on atomic ILC. And here we have, uh, you know, within Sentinel-1, we can capture all of the uh, uh, command lines entered. So it makes it very easy to hunt very effectively. Uh, so that that's that's really interesting to see. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to before we move on to Solar Marker. Uh, so ICID, they they're not really dropping their own payload, as you were saying. They, they're basically they've created this created this very powerful and effective uh, malware as a service, as you call it, um, uh, that that allows for infiltration. But then after that, they kind of are like hands off, right? I mean, we're, we're giving, they're selling other threat actors the ability to compromise the network, but they're not actually doing anything, at least as far as we know. 
they're not really doing that themselves. They're not, they're not dropping their own ransomware or dropping their own banking trojan or whatever um, to monetize. So their only real monetization they're getting is by having other bad guys pay them to use their tool to get into a network. Well, why, why do you think they're not, if they're this good at making the, a way in, why are they not monetizing it? Well, I mean, they're very much like an arms dealer, right? Or, or a getaway driver in that they, you know, they're getting their payment um, in, in an adequate fashion, but uh, avoiding a lot of the risk of, of essentially committing the immediate crime. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, when you can scale that model for several services, um, you know, it's just as lucrative and, and really comes with much less risk. So I assume that that's, that's the methodology that they're working on. So they're, uh, you know, if you got like the FBI and other, other agencies and investigative groups, uh, they're, they're more likely to target the ones that are actually receiving money from victims, not so much the, the secondary chain is in, in, you know, who, who enabled them. I mean, hopefully they are, hopefully they're observing that and, and, and getting, getting, giving them attention as well. But mm-hmm. I can see that whoever gets $10 million from a big ransomware attack would be the first, first stop in that investigative uh, chain and also it seems like there's almost a level of plausible deniability like we look at metasploit uh it's it's a, a pen test framework but it's also can be effectively used by threat actors um look at like uh other tools like, like mimikatz which is you know it gathers passwords but is it truly malicious is it malware uh, probably but you know there's a debate to be had so it seems like if it's not dropping, like I said, if there's not dropping payloads and doing it, I guess there's a almost a plausible deniability of whether they're truly bad or not. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example, right? They're, they're, they're leveraging Cobalt Strike, which is the epitome of that discussion of are you bad or are you not? Um, and it's, you know, so so effectively used in these cases. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we can purple team with any of these tools. Um, Bloodhound's another good example of of that, but um, but you know, I think I think that in this case, their 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 intentions are pretty clear, and they definitely are, um, you know, getting financial motiv- motivation. Um, so I, I'm sure they get the you know some visibility. But you're right; it's they're 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 further down the chain and, and of a of an investigative chain that it's that's too long for us to, to deal with. Um, and there's many many more um, threat actors out there than there are investigators and they're always, you know, sort of one step ahead. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how uh, law enforcement starts to evolve to deal with those sorts of, of threat actors. The default answer is they're, they're always one step ahead of us, but my, my, my vision, my view, my, my aspiration is one day before I retire, we're gonna be yes. able to say, yeah, you know what? We're just one step ahead of them. They, they're, 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 don't get me wrong, I have all kinds of respect it yeah. sounds odd to say, but I have all kinds of respect for these threat actors. They're smart. They're smart. You have to respect your enemy. And they're always innovating, just as we're always innovating. Uh, but yes, one day, I look forward to saying, we're, we're always one step ahead of them. They, they, you know? That will be when you do retire, right? Because then what will <laughs> you do? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's, that's when I'll be playing lawn darts and shuffleboard. So sounds good. <laughs> um, Naranjan, talk to us about Solar Marker. Sure, Brian. There's another cat and mouse game. So this particular rat was not never seen before, and it was probably active since May or June, early June this year. But we started pulling in solar marker rat-related signals 
through our telemetry uh, and MDR investigations uh, somewhere early July. And uh, speaking of this, the attackers heavily relied on SEO poisoning uh, tactics that normally tricks a user browser to redirect when they search for common business related themes like invoice receipts or other templates to a malicious or compromised Google hosted domain. So the count that was reported was somewhere around 100,000 sites. And typically when a person who visits one of these infected site would, would uh, get a binary that normally was disguised as a PDF installer. You could see some of those names like photo designer, export PDF.exe, slim PDF, and so on. So when the user uh, executes this particular installer, at the back end, you could see like multiple instances of PowerShell commands being executed. You could see that from the uh, process explorer image on the bottom left corner. And that happens in the background, but what the user normally sees is a GUI related to the PDF installer itself, asking them to click next. So the malicious activity slowly happens at the back end. Sentinel one agent clearly picks up all these events. And when you look at it in the, in the console, you would see all these multiple instances of PowerShell uh, being spawned. And if you look in, in the command line, you would see clearly that there is a nested for loop, like there are two for loops and there's an XOR decryption that is happening with a long key value. And this is this normally happens in three or four stages. And I believe it was on the fourth stage that a new .NET DLL payload, which is the solar marker rat backdoor component that gets dropped at the disk. And uh, when it gets executed, it is uh, it, it can perform not just backdoor functionality, but it can also steal browser credentials and user machine information. And on a successful infection of solar market rat, it drops a config file with a unique victim ID in it by the file name solarmarker.dat, which is a strong indicator of compromise on a successful infection. So we normally share all high quality deep visibility queries in our TLP Amber version of Watchtower report. So we have covered all uh, you know, in-depth research on solar market rat over the last three months in our TLP Amber version. And so far we have seen like close to about two or three versions of solar market rat, but functionality wise, all versions of this particular rat has remained almost the same. So, uh, that's about solar market rat. Considering the high volume uh, and uh, number of victims identified hit by this particular rat, this turned out to be a very interesting topic for us to be uh, for us to cover in the month of July. Yeah, that was that that was really interesting. One and another, like you say, a great example of identifying uh, parameters that remain across malware families that we can hunt on. So finding these things that, that we can hunt on that, that we'll, we'll, we'll find them no matter I mean they have to make substantial changes to their code to uh, to, to make this make this hunting pattern uh, not not effective so another great reason and uh, example of how we can hunt powerfully across a series of campaigns or a series of malware iterations so I, I mean there's not a whole lot of time so I'm going to refrain as much as I do love just talking um, but I'm going to let you talk a bit about muddy water next. And sure, uh, uh, Brian, just uh, one last point about solar market rat was that we didn't find any sort code similarity 
with any other rats or any other malware that we saw in the past. We couldn't attribute that to any single particular actor or threat group. Um, and we didn't find any other additional payload like a ransomware or something getting dropped post-infection of a solar market rat. So that was the last point I just wanted to uh, mention for that particular topic. So we'll move on to the next topic on Muddy Water APT group. Uh, this is also believed to be an Iranian APT group active at least from 2016. The first wave that I saw in my previous company uh, of Muddy Water was when they were targeting Saudi banks and they use PowerShell, Mimikatz, and few other custom tools uh, specifically. And even in this way, we were able to identify one specific payload. Uh, the file was identified from VirusTotal and it was um, using a theme related to a government in South Asian country, which was which is already known to have been targeted by um, Muddy Water Group in the past. So given the fact like they are continuing to target the same countries or organizations over a period of time and using custom tools. The payload that was identified dropped by this particular dropper is called Connect Vice Control or Screen Connect, which is a legitimate application that allows a system administrator to manage their enterprise system remotely. So they normally spy on uh, victim organizations. So when we looked into this particular dropper, we couldn't identify any other additional IOCs beyond this particular dropper and its payload. So given the other attribution angle, we are quite confident that it's muddy water and the group hasn't been very active in the last couple of weeks, but we are monitoring using our deep uh, queries, virus total retro hunt and few other technologies available with Sentinel-1. And we might come up with a better research if we find any other tracers along our telemetry and our endpoints as well. So it's a short write-up on this particular group um, and they keep continuing focusing on selected countries and selected organizations in those countries. Yeah, well, a well-known threat actor that we've seen do a lot of big, big, big yeah. things. So yeah, seeing a new pivot and a new attack pattern coming out of them is always interesting and something to be aware of. Um, so Naranjo, we have two minutes. I'm gonna let you talk about some of the new malware families you discovered and well, now we have one minute. <laughs> okay. The other responsibility for Watchtower Hunters is also to perform threat intelligence so that we go through different underground forums to understand if there is any new malware that, that is being developed, shared, or sold between different uh, actors or affiliates. And we came up with uh, two interesting um, cases. One is on two ransomwares that got developed during that time. Uh, one of the name is uh, Camel Valley. The other one is Mercury ransomware. You could see the highlighted key features provided by these actors and the cost of the builder tool itself. Um, but we did confirm, uh, or we can confirm that these two ransomware variants were not identified in our telemetry because we hunted for known traces or possible uh, behaviors of these ransomware payloads across our uh, customer telemetry base. And there were no signs of any infection. So that's about one of uh, the topics that we look for through underground forum. Brian, can you please move on? So this is another rat. Uh, so it's for mobile platform. We don't have a mobile agent though, but since Pegasus and few other surveillance tools were picking up good media attention, we thought of adding details on this particular rat as well um, because they were recently spotted in the underground forum. So you could clearly see like what are the cost quoted by the seller, the different features and uh, technical capabilities of this new particular rat that could help a user to conduct surveillance 
on another uh, device or a set of devices and it's a cross plat platform rat so it could run on windows mac linux or android as well so we thought it's an interesting topic that we could cover and all the details are being covered both in tlp it and tlp amber versions of uh, watchtower report for the month of july great thank you and Ranjan, you were able to do that very quickly <laughs> i know there is a lot of stuff <laughs> thank you talked thank about you. um drea Naranjan, thank you so much for your time I, I um, yeah, it, always a pleasure, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. And we'll be back in a month. And let me just say, you know, stay vigilant and stay hunting, and and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Everyone. Yeah. Bye. -bye.